Moses said in that final sermon of remembrance before God took him, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him. Then he said, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are at the end of our study of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, and this is also the end of the national section of Romans, which encompasses chapters 9, 10, and 11. The national section begins by looking at the nation of Israel as being God's specially elected nation. Then we see Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah in chapter 10. And here in chapter 11, we find Israel's eventual restoration as they embrace Jesus as the one true Son of God. Now there's coming a time, in the Old Testament it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the worst time on earth that has ever or will ever happen. Two-thirds, according to the Revelation, two-thirds of the people living on earth will die. You talk about a 9-11, you take 9-11 and multiply it a billion times over. You talk about heartache, it is a terrible ache that will fall on the earth. But God is going to use it. Now, think about what God is doing, though, in preparation for that time. Because I believe that we are witnessing the beginning of the end. And I will not be at all surprised. No one knows when Jesus will return, but I will not be at all surprised if I get to see the rapture in my own lifetime. In 1948, when Israel became a nation, it was nothing short of a miracle. Approximately 600,000 Jews at the time were surrounded by 40 million Arabs. And they won. They were victorious. Why? Because it was the fulfillment of prophecy. When preachers like myself 100 years ago spoke of the future regathering of Israel, they were laughed at. That they said they haven't been a nation since 70 A.D. What do you mean they're going to become a nation? That's impossible. It was as wild and as crazy to them 100 years ago as a man walking on the moon. And what took place was nothing short of a miracle. And equally significant has been what God has done in Israel since that time. Because God is bringing Jewish people back. Communism fell and millions of Jews came from the former Soviet blocs into Israel. Then you had all your Ethiopian African Jews who migrated from Africa into Israel. And now even in our day, even in the current crisis with cities all across the world, not just protesting what is happening today in Israel, but with that protest is coming all these anti-Semitic slurs and hatred. We've seen it in the last two weeks in Germany, in Spain, in France, in England, and even in a few cities in the United States. But God was sovereign when he brought those people back into the land. When Hitler murdered six million Jewish people, God, as the Bible says, uses the wrath of man to praise him. God used the devil's sword to cut off his own head. God used that to create a desire for the Jews to come to their homeland. You know, the Jewish people came to the United States 
during the time of the Holocaust, and the President of the United States said, you cannot come in. It is so embarrassing to me as an American when I go into the Holocaust Museum, either in Washington, D.C., or the one that we've duplicated after that in Israel, and you see these letters from the President of the United States saying, no, the Jews can't come in. And they had no place to go. So God brought them back into his own land. Listen to what happened 10 years after Paul wrote, writes Roman. Jesus predicted this. Jesus said, for the days will come, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And so in 70 AD, just as Jesus had prophesied, the Roman general Titus Vespucian came down and he murdered one million Jewish people. And he carried away another 100,000. And the few that were remaining in 132 AD were then carried away and forced and expelled by the Romans into slavery. Now let me give you a uh, picture of the demographics of Israel. After that time, Israel was virtually a desolate place. But there was a little movement in the late 1800s to the Zionist movement where some Jews said, we want to go back to the homeland because God said it's our land. And so for the first time, when demographics were kept, there were 25,000 Jews there in Israel. In 1948, when they became a nation, there were 600,000 Jews in Israel. Today, there are over 6 million Jews in Israel, which represent 43% of all the Jewish people on the planet. Why? Because God is setting the stage through Israel to bring his son back from heaven. You say, is the return of the Jews from these other countries of the world? And we're seeing even movement in the last two weeks, Jews in France, Jews in Ukraine, Jews in other countries of the world that are pleading with Israel to come. And, and the president says, come on, we'll provide a place for you. Why? Because of the growing anti-Semitic spirit in our day. That's what we're seeing. We're witnessing it right before our eyes. And more Jews are coming back. You say, is that significant? Yes, it's what God said would happen. Listen to this, Isaiah 43. Do not fear, God said, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Likewise, the prophet Ezekiel chapter 11, therefore say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of promise. Moses predicted that the Jews would be scattered, but then he predicted also a regathering in Deuteronomy 30. He said, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back into the land which your fathers possessed. I was reading this week Adam Clark, who was a, a British Methodist who recognized how God had fulfilled all the prophecies for the first coming, literally. And he was a minority in his day, and he believed that God had to fulfill it also in reference to the second coming. And he wrote these words. He was born in 1760, but in 1811 he wrote, as this promise, the one I just read from Deuteronomy 30, as this promise refers to a return from captivity in which they had been scattered among all nations... Consequently, this cannot refer to the Babylonian captivity. 
In other words, he's saying, when, when they came back after 70 years, that cannot possibly be a fulfillment of that promise. Because God said he would gather them from all the nations of the earth, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. When the British were in control of Israel, they offered the Jewish people Uganda as a new homeland. And had they accepted that homeland... And had the Jews come from all over the world to Uganda, then God would not have fulfilled his promise. Because God promised the regathering not just to any place, but to the land which your fathers possessed. Moreover, Moses adds a spiritual following that will happen. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Now, that has not been fulfilled. But Moses said before the second can happen, before the dry bones of Ezekiel's vision can come to life spiritually, the people have to be regathered physically. So Moses gave the order. There's a physical regathering, and then there's a spiritual regathering. Ezekiel does the same thing. There's a physical regathering, and then there's spiritual life that will come out of that, where God will circumcise their heart. And that's why I say we are witnessing the beginning of the end. And when you add to what God is doing in Israel, when you add to the apostasy that is happening amongst Gentiles around the world... When you look at the moral climate, there's just a number of issues that are coming together that God is going to use to bring about the return of his son. And so between verses 25 and 26 here in Romans 11, there's a lot that God is fulfilling. And so verse 26 says, and all Israel will be saved. Now let me visualize the prophetic calendar. As you can see on this chart, we're right now in the church age. That time between Pentecost and the rapture, what the Bible calls the fullness of the Gentiles. And when God's bride is complete, he will catch us up, which is what the word rapture means. We shall all be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. After that, a one world leader will come on the scene with a one world government. He comes in the place of Jesus, Antichrist. He comes instead of Jesus. He will have a one world government, a one world economy. He will make a peace treaty with the Jews, which they will initially accept. But he will break that peace treaty when in the middle of the tribulation, he will commit what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And then wrath will come upon the earth like the world has never seen. And the times of the Gentiles, which goes to the second coming, will end when Jesus comes back. Now, during that seven-year period, Revelation 7 says 144,000 Jews will be witnessing. Listen, right now, we are their witnesses to the rest of the world. But during the time of the Great Tribulation, it will not be Gentiles witnessing to the world. It will be Jews, once again, in a place of spiritual leadership where they are witnessing to the rest of the world. God is in control. He knows what he is about. And this time known as the Great Tribulation, this seven-year period, is a time of absolute horror. Jeremiah described it in this way, for thus says the Lord, I've heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. What do I see? Every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth. And why have they have faces that have turned pale? And so he uses similar imagery that the Lord Jesus, and he said, just like it would be, and he's very graphic, agonizing for a male to give birth. 
So that time, the time of Jacob's trouble, will be an agonizing time upon the earth. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. In Matthew 24, Jesus described that seven-year period in this way. For at that time, there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and will never again. And unless those days were limited, cut short, no one would survive, but those days will be cut short or limited because of the elect. It's going to happen. God knows what he is about. And when that time happens, what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble, God will fulfill his promise and the Jewish people will believe in Jesus as Lord. And so when God says all Israel will be saved, he doesn't mean literally every single Jew will be saved. And there are some popular preachers who say that. But let the context define it for us, just like the fullness of the Gentiles does not mean that every single Gentile is saved. But when he describes all Israel being saved, all of believing Israel during that time of the tribulation that will represent the majority of the nation, they will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And to underscore that truth, he says, notice, quoting Isaiah 59, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. If you know Isaiah 59, it's a passage that deals with the second coming of Christ where Jesus will literally come to Jerusalem and be Israel's king. And the covenant that he made in Jeremiah 31 will be fulfilled. This is my covenant with them when I take their sins away. Now, very quickly and finally, beyond the power of God to restore Israel and beyond the purpose of God, there's the perspective of God to restore Israel. It's in God's viewpoint to do this. Notice verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, that is God's election, same word, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. If only Luther could have read that verse earnestly, he would not have said and done to the Jewish people what he had done. From the standpoint of the gospel, they look, Paul said, like enemies to you. Why? Because the Jews persecute you and chase you down and try to kill you and murder you as Paul once did before his conversion. But from God's point of view, from the standpoint of God's election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why? Verse 29, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The King James captures it better, more literally, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. That's what it literally says. You know what the word neto repent means? It means to change your mind. He's saying the gifts and the calling of God are given without a change of mind. That is the promise that God made to the Jewish people. He will keep. He will be faithful to that everlasting covenant. Verse 30, for just as you, Gentiles, once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these, referring to the Jews, also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that mercy may be shown to all. Why? Because we're all sinners and all in need of mercy. And then one of the greatest doxologies in the Bible, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. 
and unfathomable his ways. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. We read it this morning in the pastoral prayer. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? And then he quotes Job. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? God never needed to depend upon human assistance to pull anything off that would put God in debt. And God is no man's debtor. The fact that we can even partner with God, that God can use us is not because he needs us. It's because it is a privilege for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, let's not leave this passage of scripture without applying it. I told you this was deep theology. But most of us can get a grasp on it. Some of us are brand new to the faith and I understand that. But this is important, and we need to apply it in our day. So let me ask three questions by way of application this morning. Do you know that God is always faithful to his word? Do you know that? Does that resonate with you today, that God is always faithful to his word? Listen, every promise God has ever made, he will keep. And God made some promises to Israel, and he is going to keep those promises. Remember, chapter 8 ends that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the natural thinking Gentile would be, well, wait a minute, God. You said you loved Israel with an everlasting love. And it appears you've abandoned Israel. How do we know that you might not abandon us? And so he shows in 9, 10, and 11 that he keeps his promises. When Paul writes about the hope or the guarantee of eternal life to Titus, he said in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his message and the proclamation that I was entrusted. God who cannot lie does not say God who does not lie. There's a difference. God who cannot lie, Hebrews will say it is impossible for God to lie. God keeps all of his promises. I was talking recently to someone and they said, well, pastor, I'm single and I've wanted to be married and I pray and I pray and it just seems like no one is going to come my way. I said, listen, if God put it in your heart to be married, you keep seeking God. Better to be single, wanting to be married than being married, wanting to be divorced. Listen, you wait on God's time. You wait for God's proper time. God knows what he is about. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And in God's perfect time, he is going to bring the Jews to genuine faith in him because God keeps all his promises. Do you know that? If you do, then you ought to hold on to some of those promises and learn them and walk by faith in them. Secondly, do you as a Gentile who's been saved by grace fear God? We've seen all the way through this passage these warnings from God. And he couldn't have said it any more pointedly than he did in verse 20 to us as Gentiles, do not be conceited but fear. I've often thought of the question that Isaiah the prophet asked in his day, who among you fears the Lord? And I often think, who among us in this modern evangelical church really fears God? I was speaking yesterday to one of our visitors. And, you know, we're supposed to exegete, read out, not read into the Scripture, but read out of the Scripture what God says. We were talking about that we live in a day where pastors are not doing exegesis. They're not giving exegetical sermons. They're giving narcissistic sermons. They're reading into the texts of Scripture. It's all about us. 
and it's all about me, but not about the living God, and we don't really fear God anymore. But that's so contrary to the early church. So the church, Acts 9, throughout all Judea and, and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. You know that a mark of good, godly character is you fear God, and a mark of rotten character is you do not fear God? We studied that in Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yet Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 8, he says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. If you have a holy hatred for evil then you fear God. But if you're playing with sin, you don't fear God. I sat next to two attorneys on the airplane coming home, and God providentially put me there because I know these men needed to know Christ. And it became apparent why they were flying to Charleston that weekend to have a big time and to sow their oats. Oh, we're Christians. And, you know, they're knocking the beers down while I'm on the plane. And there are so many people like that, aren't they? They don't really fear and revere God. Isaiah, when he gets a glimpse of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of an unclean people. When John, in the Revelation, gets a glimpse of the Lord Jesus, he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, and if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Why? Because even for the Christian, there's coming a time of future evaluation, not to see if we go to heaven, but God will evaluate our service to him. Hebrews 11 Noah, a great man of God, by faith Noah being divinely warned of God of things not yet seen, moved by godly fear prepared an ark. The midwives in the time of Moses, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. And because of that, God blessed them. We read in the same chapter, because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Oh, that some of our politicians who are writing legislation in favor of the murder of little babies and in favor of a deviant lifestyle that God calls an abomination, if they would somehow just fear God. Moses said in that final sermon of remembrance before God took him, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him. Then he said, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. The virtuous woman in Proverbs is described in this way. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And Mary, when she gives that song of praise after the angel comes and tells her that she has in her womb will conceive the Messiah by the Spirit of God, she gives the Magnificat Latin for song of praise and his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. The Bible habitually commends the fear of the Lord. Oh, today in this narcissistic evangelical world, we like the fun side of God. We don't want to hear about the fear of God. 
We want to talk about how God gave me a new car and a new house and a new wife and he blessed me with this and blessed me with that. We don't want to hear about the fear of the Lord. And yet in Acts 4.11, when God brings discipline upon the church and great fear came over the whole church, the Bible says. And that's good. That's healthy because that's the beginning of wisdom. And one of the growing problems of our society today is people don't fear God. They don't fear the police. They're not scared of their parents. They're not scared of God. They don't fear anything. And when you don't fear anything, you will do anything. But great fear came on the church. And so I would just ask, as God commands us, don't be conceited, but fear in this chapter. Do you really, truly fear God? And then finally, I would ask, do you know that you're saved? Listen, one of these days, God's going to wrap it up. The fullness of the Gentiles will be complete. The last person that God deems to be a part of his church will be a part of Christ's bride, and he will seal it up. Listen, if I didn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if Jesus came back today, that I would go to heaven, I would want to get it right. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And people who have heard the gospel in clarity and power after the rapture of the church, the Bible is clear, they will not believe. They will perish with the two-thirds of the people on the earth who will perish. They will not believe. Because God himself, as a judgment, will send a deluding influence that they might believe what is false because the Bible says they took pleasure in sin. Listen, if you're taking pleasure today in sin, and there is pleasure in sin for a season, today is the day to get right. Today is the day to put Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Now, our Father, we thank you today for your word that we have studied Thank you that you are indeed sovereign in the affairs of men and nations. Help us as your people to see as you see, as you look at this planet, as you look at this world, a world that is becoming more and more like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. You have fulfilled even in this generation great prophecy. May we have eyes to see that you're setting the stage that the Lord Jesus could come at any moment. Help someone today, O oh Father, to call upon Jesus in faith, for you promised is the one who cannot lie, for it is impossible for you to lie, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone today to believe that when Jesus died, he took their place, that he died for all of their sin and was punished for every single one. Help someone today to call upon the risen Lord, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help those of us who have met you to truly take heed to the warning, not to be conceited or boastful or prideful, but to truly fear you and to walk in a holy reverence. For someday we will meet you and give an account. So help us to conduct our lives, as Peter said, with fear upon this earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's message, The Beginning of the End, program ROM56, is the end of the national section of our study in the book of Romans. 
And you can listen to it again by downloading the Search the Scriptures app available in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. You can also listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478. Just ask for program ROM56. And whether you contact us online or through the app or by phone, why not consider making a gift to Search the Scriptures? It is only through your prayerful support and your encouragement through your donations that we are able to continue this ministry dedicated to sharing the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Tomorrow we'll move on to the applicational section of Romans beginning in chapter 12. Join us then as we search the scriptures.